You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Heavenly Father, we pray that our eyes would be open to who we are, but above all, to who you are, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So the last time we gathered together, at least when I was here, we talked about the nature of sin being a condition, something that we can't escape, something we can't get beyond, something that manifests itself in our everyday lives. And if it were only a matter of the will to be able to tamp it down, all of us would be in much better shape. Uh, But I once challenged somebody uh, not to sin. Uh, you can think bad thoughts. I'll even, I'll even grade you on a curve. I'll, I'll lessen the standard. Uh, just don't, you can think bad thoughts. You can do that. But I want you to not act on sin. And they said, deal. And they came to me uh, a week later, and I say, how'd you do? And they said, I didn't make it out of bed. Before my feet hit the floor, uh, I realized that I'd forgotten something, and I gave my wife a hard time about it. And I said, well... Uh, There you go, and that's the truth of all of our lives. Uh, But that's not just it. One thing that we do know, and the articles make clear, and the Bible makes clear, the Bible echoes this, is that we need to understand our own sinfulness uh, before we can understand our need for a Savior. John Newton, the great uh, preacher uh, in 18th century England, uh, at one point, you you know him because of Amazing Grace. And many of you have probably heard, because we talk about it every once in a while, uh, John Newton's testimony of uh, becoming a Christian while a slave trader. He was buying up, kidnapping people, and uh, taking them uh, across the ocean to North America uh, in order that they might serve in bondage uh, until death, and then their children in bondage, and then those children's children in bondage. And uh, he came to an understanding of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And so at the end of his life, he said, these two great truths uh, I, uh, I've, I've understood. And his congregation would talk about him talking about this quite a bit. William Wilberforce writes about it because Newton would express it to Wilberforce because Newton, of course, would later give his life over to abolishing the slave trade, the very thing that had made him a wealthy man. And uh, he said, the two great things that I've learned in my life... Uh, is that I am a great sinner, but Christ is an even greater Savior. And for him to know just how amazing God's grace is, he had to know just how awful he was plumbing the depths of his own heart. Uh, For someone who thinks that they don't need to be forgiven much, Jesus had something to say about that. He said, someone uh, who's been forgiven much loves much. Right, if you understand what you've been forgiven for. Uh, But if you think, you know, I'm really not that bad a person and there's not much I need uh, forgiving for, uh, that's going to manifest itself in your own life as you demonstrate uh, grace and love or lack thereof to other people. And so Newton uh, was incredibly gratuitous in his showering of grace on individuals. Why? Because he knew what he had been saved from and what he now had been saved from. So yes, coming to an understanding of your sinfulness is absolutely important. Uh, But that's not to say that you have to go through this long misery, that that it's some sort of formula whereby, okay, well, Andrew, if what you're saying is true, then I guess that means 
what I have to do is wallow around in my sin like the prodigal son a little bit before I can come to my senses. For some of you, that may be true. You may have a testimony like that uh, where it took a really long time for God to get your attention. Uh, But you only have to look as far as the Bible to understand that that's not everybody's testimony, that it actually an understanding of your own sinfulness can be instantaneous. Paul, right? Paul was going to Damascus thinking he was doing God's will, thinking in one moment while he was riding to Damascus that he was doing God's work by kidnapping Christians and bringing them back to Jerusalem for persecution and likely death. And in a moment, uh, he was struck down, and he went from thinking that he was firm in God's will and was earning God's approval to what? Realizing his own spiritual blindness beyond even his now physical blindness. And so it may be that your testimony is that, yeah, all of a sudden God got my attention. It wasn't necessarily this gradual process, Uh, whatever it might be. And then shades of gray in between there for some people, uh, it doesn't, and you, if you have children, they're like this. Like, I have one child who, if I look at her cross-eyed, she bursts into tears. The other one, I can beat like a government mule. Now, I wouldn't do that, of course. Uh, and it won't make a lick of difference. In fact, one of them said, can you just spank me so I, I can get back to what I'm doing? Uh, let's, let's get this out of the way. Uh, and it may be for us, you know, in the language of AA, a high bottom or a low bottom. You, know, you might be someone where it doesn't take much to get your attention and for you to say, woe is me, and throw yourself upon the mercy of God. And for some of you, it may be that God has to go to great lengths to get your attention and may still be going to great lengths. And you have family members, friends, where you think, how much lower could they possibly sink before they cry out to God? And it seems never-ending. It seems like they'll never actually uh, get to that point, but we trust in God's mercy, uh, that their eyes would be open uh, to their need of Him. And so we're looking today at Articles uh, 11 through 14 and then um, uh, 16 and 17. Is that right? Yes, I think that's right. 16 and 17. We're not going to get to all of them because of uh, time, but I do want to uh, weave some of these in and out uh, of our topic today of how do I get right with God and also look at what the Bible has to say, primarily looking at Luke chapter 18 and then looking at another conversion story in Acts chapter 16, the Philippian jailer. So one of the great things was during the Reformation was the issue of justification. Now, everybody knows that, but justification, if I asked you, well, how do you dis- define justification? What is it? Uh, we have a hard time doing that, don't we? It's, it's a big theological word, and how do we define it? But if you want to talk about justification uh, of man or justification by God, uh, you can say it's right standing before God. How is it that you come to a place where you're justified standing before God rather than guilty? So this is how the reformers in England uh, wrote it out. Uh, we are counted righteous before God only for the merit of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, by faith, and not for our own works or deservings. Wherefore, that we are justified by faith only is a most wholesome doctrine and very full of comfort, as more largely expressed in the homily of justification, which you've all read. 
It's a joke. None of you have ever read the homily on justification. You can find it online if you really want to get into it. Gerald Brayson, a really good sort of uh, update of the homily to make it a little more digestible. I think you can find that book in our bookstore. But anyway, the reformers want to go out of their way to echo what the Bible says, and that is, is that you're accounted righteous before God. You can stand before God only because of the merit of Jesus, only because of what Jesus has done for you. If you go before God thinking that you stand in your own merit, and there are people out there who say, I want to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and I want to be judged by my own merit. I'm fine for God to break out the scales. And guess what? You're going to get what you want. That's exactly what's going to happen. Because the cry of the Christian is not for justice, it's for mercy. Because we know that we're lacking. When I was in the 11th grade, I was in a rural school system, so we would have these classes on Christianity. And the one non-believer in the school was given this class. And so what she uh, tried to do was introduce us to Eastern religions. Uh, And it actually worked uh, very well in my Christian walk because she asked us to keep a karma journal. And I'm like, what's a karma journal? Well, have two columns, and every time you do something good, write it down. And every time you do something bad, write it down. Well, I'll be honest with you, I was doing pretty well. Uh, But then as the week went on, I started trying to make good out of everything, right? I took out the garbage, good, right? I said good morning to my brothers, Uh, an odd thing to do, but that was good. I began to try, and no matter how much I tried, guess what? That good column never balanced the bad column. I just couldn't couldn't do it. And, And so it is that when we stand before God, if there's a ledger made of Good deeds and bad deeds, and not just deeds, but actually the very thoughts of our hearts. That's a long list that God is going to have to work through with me, and I'm going to come up lacking. It's not even going to be close. And so if we are going to stand before Jesus, it's going to be by His merits and His alone, His taking our place upon the cross and Him receiving the punishment that we rightly deserve. Right? Because that is, for the wages of sin, Paul writes, is death. That's what we've earned. What's a wage? Something that we've earned ourselves. I can remember when I first started working, and um, we, they talked about uh, wages. And I remember getting my first paycheck and saying, wait a minute, I'm getting shorted here. Who's this FICA guy? Right? Who's that guy? I want to talk to him. Right? Uh, I, I want what you promised me. You said you would pay me this wage, and this is... Right? That's a wage. And so at the end of the day, when you go and say, hey, I want what's coming to me, guess what it is? Death. Here it is. Fike is not deducting anything from that. You're going to get it full force. You've earned it. Here it is. But as Paul would continue, the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. And so we're not accounted based on our merit, but by faith and not for our own works or deservings. This is wonderful news. Our works aren't going to be counted against us if we but put our faith, our trust, our leaning, our reliance upon the Lord Jesus Christ. So we can all stand before the throne of judgment and say, I deserve it. I know that I'm guilty, but I'm with him. I plead the merits and mediation of Jesus Christ. 
Wherefore, that we are justified by faith only is a most wholesome doctrine and very full of comfort as more largely blah, 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 blah. Right? Why is it wholesome and very full of comfort? Because it means, you know, most Christians, especially Protestants, don't have a hard time saying, we can't earn God's favor. It's justification by faith, justification by grace through faith alone more specifically. Well, surveys tell us that actually most Protestants in America don't believe that. They believe that it's a combination of works, of being good, plus God's favor. So what Matt said this morning, that we do the best that we can and Jesus picks up where we leave off. That's, thank God, untrue. Uh, That's not it at all. In fact, it's all Jesus. And also, the other side of that, if there's nothing that we can do to earn God's favor, there's nothing that we can do to unearn it. A survey was recently, uh, not recently, it's been about two years now, that was done asking Christians um, about salvation and, um, and asked, can sin cause you to lose your salvation? And most people said, do you believe, I mean, basically, do you believe in eternal security? Do you believe that so long as you are in God's hand and you're putting your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you're in good standing with God. And most Christians in America would say, absolutely. But then the question was asked, but what about habitual sin? What if you continue to persist in sin? And actually, people began to change their tune. People began to say, oh, well, if it's habitual, if it's perpetual, then maybe, yes, you you could lose your salvation. Uh, To which I'd want to sit down and say, Tell me which of your sins isn't habitual. Uh, Tell me how you're not continuing to persist in sin. I'm not trying to make light of it, but what I am trying to say is that what Scripture teaches and what what, uh, the Reformers are trying to say, if you look down, actually, I'm not going to get into it, but if sin after baptism uh, is, is that, of course, we're going, to cons- we're going to continue to sin after we come to faith in Jesus Christ. And even that is not enough to lose his favor and his goodness towards us. That's, that's pretty radical. And at this point, a lot of people who would say, I'm, I'm a Christian, would, would depart what, from what the Bible has to say about that and what the Reformers uh, have to say about that. Uh, Because there's some understanding, and I don't know where this comes from, uh, but that, okay, Jesus saves us, but it's really up to us to keep up with our salvation. That God takes a hold of us initially, but it's really up to lay hold of him until the day that we die. I saw this writ large when I was looking up the origin of the uh, poem Footprints. You know that poem? Uh, everybody's grandmother had it hanging up in their house somewhere. Uh, and I have my, grandma, my great-grandmother's copy upstairs uh, in my office. And, uh, and the gist of the poem is this, is that you're walking along, uh, your life is played out before your eyes, and there are two sets of footprints, yours and the Lord Jesus. And, uh, but then all of a sudden you notice that there's only one set of footprints uh, left, and you say to the Lord, 
See, those are the hardest times in my life, and I knew that you had abandoned me in them. And Jesus responds, no, no, my child. It is in those moments when you see one set of footprints that I carried you. So I wanted to know where the origins of this poem came from, and I looked it up online. Uh, and as expected with Christians, there are several lawsuits, uh, in effect, over who actually authored uh, the piece and who is going to make the royalties after everybody's grandmother and great-grandmother uh, buying them and putting them on the wall. Uh, and there really wasn't any, but actually next to the lawsuits, what I found were, were websites and blogs wholly dedicated to trashing the poem. And as a kid, I thought, yeah, it's kind of hokey. You know, I, you know that's maybe almost too syrupy. But actually, as I've gotten older and a little bit more in touch with my sin and I've lived life a little bit, I realize it's a great poem. Right? It's biblical. Uh, but these Christians were getting on there and trashing the poem because they said it's not true. That in fact, uh, in those hard times, God doesn't carry us. But my beach, what it really ought to look like are heels being dragged through the sand and butt prints on the sand uh, where I've thrown myself down. And that may be true enough, but they could not fathom the idea that even when we resisted God's grace, that God would not carry us. They just assumed if we resisted, God says, well, fine, go your own way. And then he turns his back on us and leaves us. But, of course, that's not it at all. If the Bible says anything about God's nature is that his property is always to have mercy and he's fierce about it, uh, even pursuing those that don't want to be pursued. I mean, if anybody could be called defiant and undeserving of God's grace, it would be Paul, a murderer, or John Newton, as good as a murderer, if not one. And yet... God pursues those who want nothing to do with him. So let's look at how this plays itself out in, the parable, in, the, uh, in Luke chapter 18 with the story of the rich ruler. Luke chapter 18, beginning with verse 18. And ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad. For he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But Jesus said, What is impossible with men is possible with God. And we've all heard that, but if you've actually ever looked at the context in which that story is told, Jesus is actually doing some teaching, and this rich young ruler, uh, we call him that, we don't know that he is that actually, uh, comes except that he is a ruler, he's a person of substance, he's a person of means, he's a person of authority. But it's actually in the context of teaching. First he tells the parable of the persistent widow. Remember that story? The widow goes to the unrighteous judge and says, avenge, my, avenge for, me my, for me 
over against my adversary. And the judge says, I don't fear God and I don't fear man, but just to get you off my back, I'm going to do it for you. And then Jesus tells the, Pharisee, the, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Let me read that one to you. Jesus says, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself would be exalted. And then the next thing that happens was that people began to bring infants and children that Jesus would touch them and bless them. And and the disciples rebuke the people. And Jesus says, no, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. For to say such For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And then the rich young ruler stands forward. You see the theme? The persistent widow who knows she comes from a place of desperation. Her only hope is in the unrighteous judge. And so she'll stop at nothing to throw herself upon his mercy. Do we understand that our last resort, that God's office is at the end of our ropes, that we have no hope beyond Him? She has no resources. She is in the worst shape financially that a woman could be in the ancient Near East. She's a childless widow. No one to support her. And so she knows the only means for her survival is this unrighteous judge. Are we approaching God in the same way? Indeed, Jesus goes further to say to those who think that they're righteous and treats others with contempt. He says, you think that the way to get to God is through the Pharisee to do all of these wonderful and good things, but actually it's the tax collector who understands the depths of his sin, who actually understands the darkness of his own heart, who knows that he's undeserving of mercy and yet understands God's property, always always, uh, being to have mercy, calls out for God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Do you understand your position as the tax collector to God the righteous judge, yet loves you unconditionally? And then finally, the children being brought to Jesus and saying, the person who brings nothing to the table is the one who comes into my kingdom. I mean, for those of you who who have children, Uh, One, you come in from a long trip. What's the first thing a child asks you when you walk through the door? What'd you bring me? Now, that sounds selfish, but actually, I think there's something to it. They actually expect their parents and their grandparents and their aunts and their uncles and their loved ones and their family to give them good gifts. There's an expectation that you're going to do that for them. Or when's the last time you took a child out to dinner or even your grown children out to dinner? And they all either lunge for the check or push back from the table and say, next one's on me. It's never happened. Why? Because children actually know how to receive a gift for what it is. It's really hard for us, isn't it, as adults, to let someone do something for us. 
And then after hearing and seeing all of this, this rich ruler gets up and says, here I am. This is what I bring to the table. Great righteousness. Jesus only gives half, not even half of the commands or a little bit more. Let's see how many. Adultery, murder, stealing, false witness, and honoring your father and mother. Five of them which outwardly are the commandments that are the most easy to keep, aren't they? He could say, look, I've never killed anybody. I've not committed adultery. I've not stolen anything. I've not lied, or at least lied publicly, that anyone knows about. And I've honored my mother and father. I've got them up in a really nice place down in Boca. It's it's lovely. All these I've kept from my youth. And when Jesus said this, He pushed on the man's bruise and said, One thing you still lack, sell in all that you have, distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. The argument that Jesus is not making is not against wealthy people per se. It's people thinking that they bring anything to the table. Thinking that they can gain favor with God. This is why, because outwardly what the world would say, they would echo what the people and the disciples, we find in Mark's gospel, say this, Mark rats out who the people are that say this. Then who can be saved? If this guy doesn't get in, how do I get in? And Jesus says, in your own strength, it's impossible. But what's impossible with man is made possible with God through the cross and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So understanding our own selves, our own sinful nature, but understanding that our salvation is a gift from God. There's nothing that we can do uh, to earn it, uh, and there's nothing that we can do to unearn it. It all belongs, and all the glory is given uh, to Him. Now, as a little appendix, let's talk about the place of works in the Christian life. Free cup of coffee to anyone who can pronounce this word. Um, Supererogation. Well, there you go. Super. So let's try it. Super. It's like erogation. Yeah, it sounds like something that your landscaper would do, uh, doesn't it? Uh, Let's read it. Uh, Voluntary works besides over and above God's commandments, which they call works of supererogation, cannot be taught without arrogancy and impiety. This is a polemical one. Uh, For by them men do declare that they do not only render unto God as much as they are bound to do, but that they do more for his sake than a bounden duty is required. Whereas Christ saith plainly, when ye have done all that are commanded to you, say, we are unprofitable servants. Uh, This is the parable, I mean, this is the story of the rich young man writ large. The parable uh, that I just read about the Pharisee and the tax collector writ large. If you think that anything you do adds to the righteousness that is given to you in Christ Jesus, you're wrong. In fact, anytime someone commends you for being a good Christian or doing good works, our response is to be the response that Jesus gives us, that I'm but an unprofitable servant doing the bidding of the master. Uh, Frank Limehouse used to do this when someone would come up and say, hey, I just want to let you know, Uh, Andrew did a really great job with this, or Andrew was Johnny on the spot with this, and Frank would look them in the eye and say, he's but an unprofitable servant doing the bidding of the master. Um, He'd say that about all of us. Um, 
Uh, and, uh, and also, uh, let's go up a little bit uh, about uh, works before justification. What does God have to say about uh, those things that we do that would even be considered good? Uh, works done before the grace of Christ and the inspiration of His Spirit are not pleasant to God, for as much as they spring not of faith in Jesus Christ, neither do they make men meet to receive grace, or as the school authors say, deserve grace of congruity. Yea, rather, for that they are not done as God hath willed and commanded them to be done, we doubt not, but they have the nature of sin. So anything that we do, even that would objectively be called good, and by that I mean uh, giving money to a poor person, uh, washing uh, your neighbor's uh, car, mowing his lawn, uh, doing anything like that. Actually, the testimony of the Bible, and we can get into this if you'd like, uh, and what the Reformers echo, is that those things are actually not pleasing to God because they're done in the flesh. Uh, what is pleasing to God are the th- things that, are, that, are, that spring out of a changed heart. And so when we become Christian believers, we're actually be, we're given a new heart. And this is the testimony of David. Remember, create in me a clean heart. David doesn't say, scrub up my old heart and make it just a little bit better version of me. But actually what we're given is a new heart. And out of that, all of a sudden we begin to desire the things that God desires. And as I mentioned last time, the struggle becomes real. Right? Because all of a sudden with this new heart, we're given the discernment of all of a sudden we begin to struggle because our heart desires one thing, and yet we find ourselves doing something different. And so if you're worried, well, I don't know if these good works are springing up out of my heart, if you're struggling with that issue, that is a testimony of the new heart. That is proof that God has worked a new thing uh, in your life. And we're not doing those works uh, to please uh, God Uh, but it's actually something that our heart desires uh, because we begin to desire the things that God desires himself uh, in our own own lives. Uh, And so that is the place of works uh, in the Christian life. But more often than not, the way that they should work, as is said here, the unprofitable servant bit, Jesus says that if you're doing good works, the left hand ought not to know what the right hand is doing. And if you are looking for recognition for the things that you're doing, and one time I, I really went above and beyond, and I cleaned the house, and I did such uh, a nice job. I even went so far as to fold laundry, and uh, I put most of it away, and I really uh, thought that I had done this amazing thing, and Lauren came home, and an hour went by, and she didn't say anything. And finally I said, how's the house look? And she goes, Oh, it looks really nice. There's your reward. Right? Right then and there. Not in heaven. Right there. Uh, Because why was I doing it? Because I wanted some acknowledgement. Right? Uh, But actually, the best kind of work is uh, when someone comes up to you and says, hey, I want to thank you when you did this for me. Have you ever had this happen to you where someone says, you've said this and it really meant a lot to me or you did this and it really uh, was of a huge help to me and you're thinking to yourself, I have no idea what this person's talking about. I'm sure I would never say anything like that, and I can't remember doing anything like that. But in fact, you probably have. The left hand just didn't know what the right hand uh, was doing. And those are the best kind of works because it means it's the spirit working within you and, uh, and not you working in yourself. So I'm going to stop it there. Uh,
uh, and ask for any questions, uh, comments, or concerns. Hi there. Hello. How, how would you uh, address a person that uh, comes from James talking about faith without works is dead? Yeah, I would say I believe that. Uh, but the difference is, you know, how the Bible talks about works or when the Bible talks about fruit, it never uses the word produce. It always uses the word bear. And so it's not us producing the fruit, but the spirit dwelling within us who produces the fruit, and we simply bear it. And so the mark of a Christian life is the bearing of fruit. The articles actually uh, say that as, a, as of good works. Faith may be as evidently known as a tree discerned by, thy, you know, by the fruit. So fruit is, but what is it that we're looking for? When we look, you know, I, I preached a sermon some years ago called Beware the Fruit Inspector. And what kind of fruit are we looking for? Uh, I would say that the fruit that the Bible talks about most that we ought to be looking for in the life of the believer is repentance and belief. That those are the big ones. Repentance, turning the other way, understanding your need for the Lord Jesus, and believing on him. That those are the two great fruits that we ought to be looking for. Uh, because what do you do when you have someone who's not a Christian who's a better person than you are? I'm not saying you. I mean, I can say me. I mean, I, I, I have people in my life who actually are nicer uh, than, than I am and yet are not Christians. And so we have to be careful not to equate... Well, being Christian means being nice, or being Christian means being good. Now, that being said, I would call into question, and I would sit down with the person who says, well, I believe in Jesus, but I'm going to continue to, you know, do whatever it is uh, that I'm doing, and I'm under grace and not under the law. Uh, I mean, I, I, I think that there's some, something that to be said about that where you sit down and actually ask, well, tell me your testimony. What is it um, that you believe and what you're believing on? And, um, you know, for an, I'll give you a, a, an example of that. I think I used it the last time we met, but it's a good one. There was a guy that came to one of my colleagues in ministry, an associate I was serving with, and the guy said, I've been having an affair. I've made a total wreck of my marriage and family. I've stopped the affair. It's, I ended it two weeks ago, but I need to figure out a way to get my life back on track, and I need to know where I stand with God, and I have to rely on him and figure out the best way for God to put this marriage back together and to move forward. And my friend responded by giving him a brief lecture on how he blew it as a husband and father and Christian and how he should have never found himself in that place in the first place. And I asked my friend, well, well, what happened with the guy? And he goes, I don't know. I never saw him again. Makes sense, right? Because that's not what needed to happen. It, what the guy needed was to be told who he was in Jesus Christ, that God had forgiven him because of Jesus, and that God could do a great work and reconcile the marriage, and that he was going to carry him through that and would even be willing to go and sit down and try to mediate between he and his wife and his family uh, a faithful future for the whole family. 
Now, if the guy had come in and said, you know, hey, I've been having an affair, and my wife, for some reason, is really bent out of shape about it, even though I try to tell her that, uh, that I'm forgiven in the Lord Jesus Christ, and she ought to forgive me too, and, you know, this is just the way that I'm made, the way that I'm wired. At that point, that's when you lay it on, right? That's when you say, no, wait a minute. Um, let's hear what the Lord Jesus Christ has to say about uh, you being a husband and father. And furthermore, uh, what does it mean to be a disciple of him and you being under the conviction uh, of sin? It's the rich young ruler, right? This is somebody that needs the bruise pressed upon, not, um, not someone who needs to be told, well, they're there. You can continue to, to believe that you come to the table with something to offer to Jesus uh, and we'll figure it all out later on. Uh, but in fact, no. Uh, go and, 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 and end your, your behavior. Put your adulterous affair to the side uh, and then come and, and follow me. It's not an if-then, uh, but what it is is a misunderstanding of what gives you your standing before God. Right? So I would say, yes, faith without works is dead, uh, but it's a working of the Holy Spirit uh, that brings us uh, to uh, the place of conviction. I know that's a big, long answer, but I tried to answer it fully. Okay? I hope everybody has good standing before God. Um, um, it's. Um, This is a big deal in our culture. I'm going to wrap it up in the last two minutes so that those who are going to 11 o'clock can go. Because it's very difficult in our culture to to convince anybody that they need a Savior. I mean, especially those of us who are sitting in this room probably live a fairly comfortable existence. And so understanding that we need a Savior, uh, and I'm going to be preaching on this next Sunday, um, who is Jesus to you? Uh, and um, that oftentimes Jesus is treated simply as an additive to our already okay lives. Jesus sweetens the pot, right? He makes it that much better rather than understanding Jesus, who he is in the totality of his salvation. And not just that, it is a culture that doesn't want to talk about death. It's so afraid of death that we don't even talk about it. And I've even kept caught myself doing it. You know, we don't even say that people die anymore. We say that they've, they've passed away or, or whatever it is. Like, you know, passed away as if, you know, they, they're just gone for... I mean, there's a finality uh, to death, so much so that we're seeing more and more people wanting fewer and fewer funerals in the church. Uh, what they want is, at best, sort of a graveside service where it's just immediately family and friends. It's like they don't want you to know that they died. Uh, or that, or the people who are now divvying their ashes up where they you know, want to have some sprinkled in this lake and some at this beach and some at this golf course. And I mean, but the Lord is going to be able to put it all back together. It'll be tricky, uh, but he's going to get you all back together on that day. Uh, but, but really, not taking into consideration... Almost death being a final look back on the goodness of life. I mean, life has been redeemed by the Lord Jesus, but we are all going to die. Right? And, and, and some of us have actually, uh, all of us in this room have either felt that acutely because uh, we've lost someone 
uh, very close to us to death, uh, or uh, we feel in our innermost being ourselves dying, uh, whether it's struggling with an illness or, or just getting older. You, know, you just can't do the things that you used to do. And so actually getting a culture to grapple with death. I mean, I thought it was interesting, the New Yorker several years ago, or maybe it was the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times, it was one of those publications uh, that only people like us read. And, um, uh, and they were talking about how fewer and fewer working Americans are taking vacation. And when they do go on vacation, they take their work with them. And they dug down and you realize, they found out why people are reluctant to take vacation. Because you're sitting there on the beach doing nothing, inevitably you have to start thinking about what? Your life and death. Meaning. What is this all for? And so people avoid vacations so they don't have to grapple with those issues. And so as Christians, finding a way forward, everybody's thinking about it in the back of their mind, but actually forcing the question, what do you think is going to happen to you when you die? Like, what do you think happens uh, when you die? What difference does this life make? And if it does make a difference, to what end? Uh, these are serious uh, conversations about eternity uh, that, that need to be had, and I believe that the world wants to have, but they're really uh, afraid of it because they're convinced there are no answers. Uh, and so at best, they just tell themselves a lie and just hope upon hope that that's true, whether it's, well, you die and that's it, and you just sleep forever. Or... God will grave me on the curve and he'll think that I'm a pretty good person and let me in. Uh, but actually understanding the great riches that can be theirs in this life in Jesus Christ and much more over uh, in the hereafter when we behold him face to face as our Lord. And so I hope uh, you can find your way into those conversations uh, about that because as the reformers say, they are of unspeakable comfort. Let us pray. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would give us the grace uh, to seek uh, you out. And Lord, that you would work uh, within us by the power of your spirit, that we most show forth uh, thy praise, not only with our lips, but in our lives, uh, by giving ourselves up over to good and godly service in your name. Uh, Lord, we do pray that we would understand that our standing before you is not because of anything that we've done or bring to the table, but is all because of Jesus. And because we've not been able to earn our salvation, that there's nothing that we can do to unearn it, and that you would keep us in the strong grip of your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.